He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. First word that comes to mind is shagging, bonk, rooting, <laughs> procreation, the ins and outs of sex. <laughs> In this show, we're going to look at the effects of colonization on indigenous sexuality, especially when it comes to the experiences of takatapui. And if you don't know what that is, you're going to find out shortly. First, we'll meet Kahi, an Auckland teenager exploring who they are, who they want to be, including through the way that they express gender. Then, did lesbian, gay, bi and trans people arrive in New Zealand with Pakia, or were they here all along? There was a really robust and vigorous exploration of sexualities and an acceptance of them. You've probably noticed our theme song's different today. This is one of my favourite songs by Electric Wire Hustle called They Don't Want. It's the instrumental version, which is sadly missing Mara TK's voice, but I just want to say thank you so much, Mara. Mara has provided so much music to us throughout the season, um, and he actually wrote every bit of music in this episode. As always, this podcast does contain sensitive material, so be careful who you're listening around. Okay, let's meet Kahi. Hi everyone, my name is Kay, and roughly the next 5 minutes and 10 seconds I'm going to try and convince you on what you might think of as a pretty radical statement. Gender is a spectrum. Now, society would have you believe that there are simply two genders, male and female, but there are many people in the world who are currently moving from male to female, female to male, some people move freely along the spectrum, and then there's also a lot of people right here in the middle, like me. I identify as non-binary, which means neither male or female. I'm 33, which is nearly twice Kahi's age. And in the years since I was in high school, the ways that teenagers are exploring sexuality and gender have changed hugely. I went to Kahi's house in Auckland, where I was welcomed into a surprisingly tidy teenage bedroom with a bold pride flag pinned above the bed and a few other clues as to what the inhabitant of this particular teenage bedroom might be into. I like your um, like rack of cotton up there. Yep. Do you have something you can show me? Some of your embroidery? Yep. This is what I'm working on at the moment. <gasps> oh my gosh, look at that. The school ball. Can you describe it for me? Uh, yep, it's a pink suit, which we bought online, and I'm uh, putting flowers and leaves on it. That's 30-something hours on it so far. I'm yet to fill in the rest, and I'm going to do the other side as well. A lot of young people who are trans or who feel like male and female are too restrictive also experience gender dysphoria. It's kind of like a conflict between their assigned gender and the one that they identify with. But, and this is important, the most recent classification of gender dysphoria in the DSM-5 states really clearly that gender nonconformity is not a mental disorder in itself. The being born in the wrong body part isn't the issue. The issue is the distress that comes along with it, which is interesting because 
What that says to me is that if non-binary gender expressions were universally accepted and celebrated and everyone was free to express themselves in whatever way they saw fit, it's likely this distress might just disappear and gender dysphoria along with it. But while neither male or female is a fit for kahi, they're lucky enough to not feel significant distress over the fact. I don't feel like I fit into male or female. Growing up, I never was into sport, which, I don't know, maybe doesn't sound that significant, but like in New Zealand at least, like rugby, is it's everything. I wasn't into stuff that was girly or whatever, but it wasn't really the expected thing for boys. I sound really pretentious, but I was always like reading books, and a lot of my friends didn't. I always felt a bit outside of the what was perceived as the male identity. Like many who identify as non-binary, Kahi uses non-gendered pronouns. So instead of he or him, asks people to use they and them. And I know it can seem confusing at first because a lot of us aren't used to hearing them used to describe a single person. But as Kahi also pointed out in their speech, as of 2015, the use of they as a singular is endorsed by the Oxford Dictionary. What's amazing to me is how easily these ideas have been adopted by young people now. I've heard so many stories of teenagers and kids just flicking a switch with pronouns, getting them right away, compared with people like me who really want to get it right every time but still stumble fairly often. And one of the main differences between my generation and Kay's is the internet. I've been on Tumblr since I was like 13. Not that those are developmental years, but in a social sense they kind of are. So the things I was learning on there about social justice, but more specifically about like gender related stuff kind of influenced how I was thinking about interacting with people. I think a lot of it actually came from like people who were writing about male privilege and entitlement. And originally I kind of felt like I wanted to separate myself from that. And part of identifying as non-binary was like, this is what society thinks a man is. And I'm like, I don't want to be that. So for Kahi, identifying as non-binary started out as an outright rejection of masculinity. If this is what male is, I don't want to be that. And they expressed that rejection at first in small ways. One day I was like, pink's going to be my favourite colour, and I'm going to drill that into people's heads. I still really like the colour pink, but like I was kind of doing it almost as a way to attempt to rebel against masculinity just out of spite. A lot of the times when I do stuff out of spite, just because no one else is doing them, I think I'm attempting to try change other people's mindset so that they're like, oh, maybe doing that isn't so bad and more people should be doing it. People would be like, why do you have so much pink stuff? I'd be like, because I like pink. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, I guess that's fine. But their identity started to move from rejection to action including the kind of thing that can be really hard for young people, even for grown people. You know, a lot of teenage boys, they don't say the most considerate things. I think a lot of them, it doesn't come out of a place of malice. It's just that they literally don't know any better. But I think one of the things I started doing was, like, just calling people on it. Like, some boy would call a girl a slut or something. And while you could see everyone else in the conversation was kind of going, uh, Mm, you, should, you should probably... I would just be like, hey, don't. And they'd kind of be like, oh, yeah, I guess I shouldn't have. I'd be like, it's that easy. Just don't. And then they kind of didn't anymore. Like, they'd be saying stuff out of ignorance, 
and all it really takes is someone to say like you probably shouldn't and as long as you have at least some evidence to back yourself up then generally they'll stop doing it. We know that Aotearoa has one of the highest rates of youth suicide in the OECD and people in LGBT plus communities are even more vulnerable. In the last Youth 12 report, same and both sex attracted young people were four times more likely to experience depressive symptoms and four times more likely to have attempted suicide in the last 12 months. Transgender young people were four times more likely to experience significant depressive symptoms and five times more likely to have attempted suicide in the last year. And takatapui are particularly high risk because they're doubly stigmatised. On top of the regular health inequalities of being Māori, there's stigma and discrimination of their gender identity, sexuality and sex characteristics. Something that can make a huge difference is feeling like your whānau is behind you, which again is luckily the case for kahi. It went down pretty smoothly initially. Like Obviously, for anyone, it's quite difficult to adjust from a lifetime of referring to a singular person as he or she. But they've, for the most part, gotten the hang of it now. And if they did say he or him, they'd always apologise. And I'd be like, as long as you're apologising, I appreciate it because I know it means you're making an effort. So yeah, I was really lucky that they were pretty accepting. And uh, my brother uses them as well. I think he still calls me his brother, but I don't blame him for that because sibling doesn't really roll off the tongue in the same way and there's not a we haven't thought of a great gender neutral term for that yeah i'd never yet, thought about that from sibling and there's a lot of stuff like my grandmother my mom's mom was also very receptive of it and she's like what do you want me to call you because i don't think grandson fits and i was like oh yeah i never thought about that and i kind of went away for like a week or whatever and thought about it and i was like call me sarah's oldest and she's like, that's that's good. I'm like, yeah, it took me a while to figure out how you'd explain that, which is good because, like, Sarah's middle wouldn't really work. So your parents have been cool, your grandparents have been cool, or your grandma has, which is amazing because I imagine that's complex stuff to get your head around when you're a bit older. Yeah, she's bi, so she's had a female partner for a lot of her life, and she's always been pretty radical. Like, I remember when I first told her she started telling me about how the movement of um, spelling woman with a Y. And I was like, yeah, it's kind of like that. So after a bit of time chatting in Kahi's room under their rainbow flag, we went back upstairs to chat with their parents, Sila and Sarah. I wanted to know what it was like as parents to hear your child say that they identify as non-binary. Well, I have to admit that until Kahi told us that they were non-binary, it's not a term that I had ever really heard before and you know maybe my first impression was oh this is an interesting teenage phase let's see what this is about and and then realize that that wasn't what it was about at all the conclusion that I got to in the end was that it's basically uh, just challenging society's constructs around gender and when I saw it in that light I just uh, I kind of feel proud to raise a child that wants to challenge society's constructs on anything really yeah, the pronoun thing has has been challenging just in terms of flicking that switch in your brain. And it's not just flicking the switch in your brain, because as a parent you feel a really strong need to advocate on behalf of your child, you know, to flick that switch in other brains too. And that was tricky for Sarah sometimes, especially at the beginning. She hadn't graduated from the school of Tumblr that Kahi had. As a parent you're constantly talking about your child, so I was constantly 
using the they them pronoun and people were constantly thinking I was talking about both children so we're having very confusing conversations so very early in meeting someone or having a conversation I was having to say when I say they I'm just talking about kahi and then just having this non-binary conversation with almost everyone I knew you know even when when you meet someone at work or someone that you've you very quickly get onto that, oh, how many children do you have and, you know, boys or girls? So it's a conversation that I was having a lot. And I kept going back to Kahi and saying, have I got this right? Because I'm not even sure that I'm representing it correctly. <clears throat> but, um, but yeah, I mean, I come from a very liberal, big rainbow family. And, uh, well, I had thought that my mind was wide open. And, uh, I don't know, I guess you kind of have an arrogance of a parent that you're teaching your children ethics and morals and kindness and all that kind of thing and and this whole experience has just shown me that actually you could open up a whole side of things that you hadn't even thought about which um, is kind of the way it should be I guess in terms of each generation challenging the next. Has it been similar for you would you say as dad? Probably not. Probably because I've had a different upbringing. I mean apart from Sarah's dad being a very religious. My parents are still very religious, but also being Samoan, a lot more challenging um, in terms of understanding the potential for gender to be neutral. <laughs> it's, a, it's a massive concept. Yeah, even though I, I was you know, ready to accept it, it was harder for me to uh, work with the language and, and still, still challenging. Okay, Sarah tells a story about one of the smaller ways that she grappled with gendered expectations as a child, and it happens to involve Kay's favourite colour. I have always had a kind of kickback against the colour pink. I hated <laughs> pink as a child because I knew I was meant to like it. So I guess I, I did kind of reject that girly thing as a child. I don't know, it was for that reason. I thought you just didn't like the colour that much. No, I just hated the fact that, that you'd been told that girls like pink. And you hated the fact that you were being told you shouldn't like pink. Yeah. <laughs> so some of the language stuff has been hard. You're essentially unlearning rules that you've known to be true your whole life. But the other stuff hasn't really, and there's lots of reasons why it might not have been too much of a jump for Sarah and Sela. As she said, Sarah came from a liberal, big rainbow family. And Sela grew up in a religious family, but isn't guided by religion now. Also, the way that Sela talks about growing up as a boy in Samoa is really interesting. He talks about how boys could hold hands and express affection towards each other. And it wasn't till he got to New Zealand that he was called out for that kind of thing. Also, before he even became a father, Sela had already decided that no matter how his kids identified, he would accept, support and love them unconditionally. It's just a shift in language, really. Well, I mean, obviously a shift in concept as well, but it's, I, I mean, I was just kind of raised to believe if you're not hurting yourself or anyone else, then, you know, what's the problem? What she said. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry about it. <laughs> you know, what's, what, what's the problem? Like you say, where's the harm? We just heard a little from Kahi about what it means to be non-binary, at least for them. 
For many, non-binary is a new term for a new concept, something they might never have thought of or had to think of before. And there's a bunch of those terms. Gender queer, gender fluid, gender non-conforming, feminine presenting, masculine presenting. It can be a bit to get your head around. But it turns out there are old words for this kind of thing too, like takatāpui. Here's Dr Elizabeth Kirikiri on what that means. Takatāpui is an ancient, ancient word. It traditionally was used to refer to an intimate companion of the same sex. Mm-hmm. We have reclaimed it to refer to all Māori who identify with diverse genders, sexes, sexualities, and with diverse sex characteristics, and who may identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, intersex, queer, gender, diverse, non-binary, and all manner of other identities, so that it's an inclusive term. So it might be helpful to think of takatāpui as similar to the way that queer is used now. It's a reclaimed umbrella term for all who identify as part of rainbow communities, though obviously there's big differences in how the words have been used historically. Plus, as well as sexuality and gender and sex characteristics, takatāpui encompasses culture and spirituality. So if we're going to compare it to queer, it's really queer and Māori. When you're part of a population that faces discrimination, Having something that grounds you as Māori, having something that grounds you as part of this really beautiful and creative and diverse community, that's life-giving for people. Kia ora, Dr Kirikiri. We're going to come back to you later on. Now, in previous episodes of Bang, we've heard from people about how finding a word that identifies them can be incredibly affirming. You remember Rosie, the autocorrosexual from last episode. But finding a word like takatāpui is affirming way beyond the experiences of the individual. And that's because it's a clue. If that word existed before Pākehā arrived in Aotearoa, it suggests that diverse sexualities were a part of te ao Māori well before Pākehā arrived. For Māori in the world that existed before Tasman Cook and the arrival of outsiders, I believe there was a really robust and vigorous and intense exploration of sexualities and an acceptance of them. This is Ngahuya Te Awe Kotuku. She's an academic, lesbian activist and museum researcher, and she's actually one of the two people who discovered, or rather recovered, that term takatāpui back in the 70s. And she spent decades searching far and wide for clues just like that. If we look at the colonial record, there are lots and lots of different diary entries, letters, even by Cook's crew and others, and certainly in the missionary record of all sorts of practices which often involved the seduction of a crew member by a winsome, gorgeous female who actually turns out to be a winsome, (laughs) gorgeous young boy. In that old world, the role of the cross-gender person, the person who walked in both worlds, was uh, very real. And, of course, the incoming whites experienced this and were shocked and horrified by it. Here's a record of one of those encounters, taken from the journals of English botanist Joseph Banks, who arrived in Aotearoa on board the Endeavour. 1770, February 3rd. 
One of our gentlemen came home today, abusing the natives most heartily, whom he said he had found to be given to the detestable vice of sodomy. He had been with a family of Indians and paid a price for leave to make his addresses to any one young woman they should pitch upon for him. One willingly retired with him, but on examination proved to be a boy. On his returning and complaining of this, another was sent who turned out to be a boy likewise. On his second complaint, he could get no redress, but was laughed at by the Indians. Okay, that's enough from you, Joseph Banks. The thing is, clues like this don't just exist in colonial records, and this is where it gets really interesting. Within traditional Māori narratives, the chant record, the genealogical narratives, the beautiful waiatakraua and moteatea that were collected by people like Apirana Ngata and Peite Hurinui Jones and others, you see a real fluidity in the lyrics, in the composition, in the various acts described. For example, there is one quite famous song that we still sing in my tribal area. There's a line that says, Ma waira e huaki takuipu whakairo, who will open up my carved calabash. Of course, that's referring to who is she going to have sex with. You can see how some of those meanings might have been missed, but at least like later in colonial oh, translations. To- or mm. Totally. Another example is a lament for a beautiful young man, Iaitia e te wahine e te tangata, who was enjoyed sexually by both women and men. And what Apirana Ngata did with that particular song is he changed the word aitia, which means basically penetrative sex, and he said afitia, which means hug. So he cleaned it up. (laughs) Yes, he bardlerised it. He did, he did. (laughs) I can think of another rather brilliant reference, which goes, Katufera Mainga Huha. The thighs open, taku kaie, and that is my food. Oh my goodness. You know, and these are graphic references to various types of sexual joy. And they're within songs that we continue to perform. They are a living record and they're they're utterly fabulous. Because she's a museum researcher, the clues Nahuya found in songs and chants sparked some other thoughts. I actually speculated that if they were kind of singing about it so much and the missionaries didn't notice because they didn't know (laughs) and so they couldn't interfere, maybe it was also in the visual record. If you consider wakahuia and papahu, which are described as treasure boxes or feather boxes, on the lids of many of them is a depiction of a female figure and a male figure. They are both lying on their backs. Their legs are often entwined. The male figure has an engorged penis, which is just about to penetrate the delicately opened and quite graphic vagina of the female. And I thought... 
woohoo, you know. And these are commonly seen all over the world. Te Papa has a really fine collection, so does Auckland Museum. What is interesting is the Auckland Museum collection has one, and it was actually two female figures. And one has her tongue, which is serpentine and long and sinewy, penetrating the vulva of the other female figure who is kind of splayed and entwined. And it's an incredibly beautiful image. I'd been thinking about another line from another ancient chant, and it referred to Tarata and Taraponamu, which is the Mons Veneris that has been either tattooed or that is valued like a piece of greenstone. And I came across this fabulous papaho carved box, and on the lid was this woman with her legs spread and in her vaginal area was this exquisite sliver of greenstone of ponamu. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, there it is, ponamu. This box has a combination of eight male figures and six female figures, but the eight male figures are all engaged in various types of penetrative sex with each other. A person's head could be on the lid, the body comes around the legs are spread on the base, and then there's a head swallowing the penis of the person whose head is on the lid. And then his body is going up the other side, and then somebody's doing it to him. It's like a daisy and, chain. <laughs> yeah, it is. And then meanwhile, you've got kind of hands busy, and oh my goodness. Um, it is an <laughs> extraordinary amazing. visual. Like, it is a visual document, but for me, it is evidential it is really important, and I, I imagine that there is still a lot of stuff in overseas institutions that we haven't found. OK, I've seen that papaho. It is extraordinary, and it's in the British Museum online catalogue, so you can Google it, but we'll also put it up on our website. Now, at the time for Ngahuia, it was a pretty exciting discovery. You can hear that. But it wasn't really surprising. We're Polynesians. We are part of a magnificent ocean of sexualities, of choices, of fluidities in the erotic, in the imaginative. You know, you look at Fafafine, at Mahu, at Whakaleiti, and you see our own. You can go to a trans pageant in Samoa, in Hawaii, in Nukualofa, in Los Angeles, in Honolulu, and you will see the same bodies, the same faces, the same hair, the same patter. You will see the same eyes flashing. And this did not happen just in the last 200 years. This has been part of our cultural identity and sense of joy for centuries. 
Now, whatever Christianity may have brought to the Māori world, which was good and wholesome and proper and acceptable, it also brought a great deal of pain and a lot of judgment, a lot of judgment. For many decades, people went into hiding, or it was seen by the more rabid Christian communities as a Pākehā problem that arrived with Pākehā. And I argue, just by looking at the carvings and listening to the lyrics of our own ancient narrative, I argue that we have been here. We have enjoyed different types of sexualities, mai rānō, forever. Thank you so much for all the very important work that you do. Now on to Rosanna Raymond. She's a long-standing member of the art collective Pacific Sisters and a founder of the Savage Club, that's spelled with a K, and a long-time producer of and commentator on contemporary Pacific Island culture. As well as working with museums to help decolonise their spaces, a lot of her own work focuses on the body. The Pacific body has been constructed from first contact from when those first ships came over and then sailed back actually to France and wrote these incredible reports of these sexually free societies where where they, they were offered you know free sex and it was a real lost in translation moment between cultures so by the time even Cook came into the Pacific his men already had expectations of these these nymphs. And as you dig deeper into the actual cultural values of the time, sex really did have a completely different meaning to the natives, but it, it certainly wasn't given freely because they were offering these women in terms of trying to bind themselves into the genealogy so, so that they could take on that mana. And then there's these fantastic reports, and this is this is when it just slayed me. It was like, you know, you get these these men that'd been on the ships for months. God knows what they stank like. You know, a lot of them had a scurvy, which makes you stink. And and so they get to the, you know, these beautiful islands, and then there's these women on the shore, and they're they're showing them their vaginas. So these guys are like going, ah, oh, it's on. You know, but what's lost in translation is that's a huge insult. And they were actually like pretty much saying, you like go back to where you came from, and because of the the mana and the and the tapu nature of the house of the people, the fari tangata, you know, it's a volatile and and procreative sort of vessel. So it was like watch out, kind of. Yeah, what? it's what? like you know we were we born you and we can take you out too. Whoa, so, and they're like yeah, yeah, and they're like oh, we're getting it tonight. We're getting it tonight. Oh, so no. you see, this is losses translation. So that I remember really thinking about that and thinking like I mean. How do you come back from that one? <laughs> so after those first interactions, the whalers and the sailors arrived, and then the missionaries, who'd had a lot of practice at turning indigenous people to God. They had a whole lot of tools that they did, especially for things like tattoos. Like there was in Rarotonga, the blue laws, where if you were caught with new fresh tatau, that they would actually tattoo over the top of it, so deface it. Oh, they would rip skin off. They literally beat them. You know, they literally beat it off our bodies because they they thought it was too sexual and 
too heathen and you know so our bodies weren't deemed fit for heaven but in our societies there is no heaven there is no hell there is Hawaii you know and your tata was your passport. A lot of the stories Rosanna tells sound pretty similar to the ones we heard from Ngahuia. A lot of the chiefs would have male lovers there's, there's in one of Captain Cook's diaries his disgust at finding one of the Tahitian chiefs down in the cabins shagging with one of his uh, his own servants so he got the chief and his servant friend and they flogged them on the decks of the ship you know so I was even by then homosexuality was considered something to be ashamed of and and not natural but that wasn't the case within the Pacific and that that was another amazing point where I realized how much have been sort of lost and, and made invisible. And you find it through the old chants mm. and all the old poetry, and there's things in there that would make anybody blush. It's, yeah, I've been blushing with Ngahuia over some of them. Yeah, I'm going to pull you, you know, pull you out, pull your lips out and lick you out. I'm like, oh, okay. You know, I'm like, wow, you know, tell it like it is. But again, it wasn't in a sexual way. It was in a way that was used as a warning. So it's like you can read it in all sorts of ways. You know, we really have had these Western values sandwiched over the top of ours. And it's a long, hard battle because these ideas now are firmly entrenched within our own communities and they're affecting a lot of our young women. They're especially f- affecting our Fafafini community, you know, where the Fafafini had a vital role within the community. And that's been pushed out because now they're being judged on a very, very conservative Christian sort of values. You know, I started this work over 25 years ago. In some spaces it's got better, but that's only because the queer communities and a lot of the artistic community are starting to push back and actually not just taking what our elders say for granted. You know, we're really having to look into the archives, into our mythologies and really make decisions, brave decisions. Mm. There's times where some of the work that I've done has really ostracised me from the very community that I want to be part of. In the end, though, for Rosanna, it's worth it. If it means Pacifica people with diverse sexualities and gender expressions hear that what they are is something that's always existed within their people. It's totally valuable to them, and it's really hard to access. You know, we've got Ngahuia, who works, you know, in a higher education level. A lot of our kids don't get that far. Mm. A lot of them are struggling under the mantle of the church, under their responsibilities to their communities. But then you've also got amazing young collectives bubbling up, like Faf Swag. And I think that what they're doing and using the arts to enable this this whole new gen to have access to this other world and go into those spaces where they didn't think they were welcome and be okay with it and shine. Afiatai Rosanna. She talked about Faf Swag at the end there and I highly recommend you look them up. There's a really great little Vice documentary that got made last year which has great interviews but also some really amazing voguing. Voguing's a dance style that references the catwalk but that doesn't do it justice. You've got to see it. Go look. Also keep an ear up for the live episode of Bang that's finishing off the season. We're going to talk to Faf Swag's Jacob Tamata. 
It's nearly time to wrap up, but before we do, I want to go back to Dr. Elizabeth Kirikiri. So she says that many of the attitudes of colonisers and missionaries were deeply internalised by many Māori, and some of them did collude to suppress a lot of important information. But she also thinks some Māori might have kept quiet for other reasons. When Alfano saw the discrimination and, of course, the laws and all the things that came with the misogyny and the homophobia and transphobia of the colonisers, a lot of Alfano had no problem. And so they just hid it and just, you know, kept quiet about it. And so I often say that sometimes over generations, over decades, over a century, they forgot why they keep it quiet. But I believe that it was to protect. When I first kind of started my thinking around this was when I came out to my great-grandmother. I was 16. My great-grandmother was born in 1903. And when I explained who I thought I was, that I was lesbian and didn't have the word takasapu by then, and she goes, oh, yeah, I had aunties like that. These are women who lived together as a couple who had to have been born in the late 1800s. This is long after the treaty. Laws were well and truly in place that made that illegal. Or, and, and our whanau had no issue with it. And that's why I use the phrase part of the whanau in all my writing. Because I said to her, what name did they have? What did you call them? She goes, they didn't have a name. They're just part of the whanau. Our whanau didn't keep quiet about it because they didn't approve of it. They kept quiet because they didn't see a problem with it. And if something's ordinary, you don't need to talk about it and you don't need to name it. Regardless of whether we had names for these things, in some cases we did and in some cases we didn't, right now there is no excuse for any of our whanau mistreating and kicking out our kids because they don't like them being the awesome diverse selves. So what would Dr Kirikiri say to parents and whānau who might be having trouble accepting the takatāpui in their lives? I would say we know that as parents, as grandparents, as caregivers, whāngai parents, that we get scared, we get worried, we might even get angry when our young people come out, they're lesbian, gay or something called non-binary, whatever that means, or even takatāpui. And you're right to be worried. There's pain out there. They're going to get hurt. They're going to be discriminated against. Your job, I believe, is not to tell them not to be that, not to be who they are, not to do what they need to do in the world. I believe your job is to make them strong through your love, through your support. You make them so resilient that when they go out there, say, my whānau have got my back. Nothing can hurt me. We're going to go back to Ngahuia one last time. I asked her to speak directly to Takatapui and Pacifica people, and especially young people, who might be struggling to open up to their whānau about this very important part of their lives. Kia kaha, kia manawa nui. Uh, be strong, listen to your heart. Find someone you can talk to. It may be an auntie, it may be a school teacher. Take care of yourself, never give up, and always believe that what you are is true 
and it comes from long, long ago. Never easy, but once you get through that really bad period, it will be fabulous. It really will. It's like you, you kind of struggle and writhe and thrash and suffer through whole buckets of shit. But if you find someone you can talk to, someone you can trust, then you will get through it. The other um, advice, of course, is that in 2018, go to the internet cafe or the library. If you haven't got your own resource, go online, check out Rainbow Youth, see who else is out there. Tēnā koutou. thank you to everyone I spoke with today. If you're listening online or through a podcast app, don't go anywhere because at the end of the credits we're going to end with a really special song. If you're not already subscribed to Bang, you can do that through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts. And there's only two episodes left for this season, so the bonus in subscribing is that when a new one comes out, you'll be the first to know. As you know, we're going to be live on air in Nights with Brian Crump after this episode. That's about 9.35 on Wednesday, July 4th. Dr. Elizabeth Kirikiri is coming back. She's going to answer some questions that maybe went unanswered in the episode or anything that comes up from you. Bang was produced by me, Melody Thomas, and engineered by William Saunders. The executive producer was Tim Watkin. Now to finish the episode, this is Marati Kay, Rob Ruha, and Troy Kingi with an incredibly beautiful waiata. This is Aku Motere, and it was written alongside Mark Vanilo and Vincent Olsen-Reader. Okay.